Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 160. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, King, Lord, we bless you tonight. We thank you for the opportunity to share with one another and to um, meet with you, our Father. We ask that you'll bless us, uh, give us the uh, enlarged capacity to understand the text, uh, help us have a meaningful time of study. We'll be uh, careful to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. My name is Arben Lyman Hana V. This is the Live Internet Studies. I'm a tour teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tenovalba Harvest in Thornton, Colorado, and you're watching my YouTube in, uh, live studies. Uh, and I pray that this will be a blessing to you. Let's just jump right into the um, studies, and uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about um, the format uh, later on in the study. But let's just jump right into it. Um, Let's start by looking at the Romans 14 study. Uh, let me blow that up a little bit. Yeah. In um, Romans 14, I've created a study that is available on my website at tetzetorah.com. T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. And um, the study is basically a look at just at Romans chapter 14 itself. We've been working our way down through the study. It's broken up into different sections where you can um, get a feel for the topic that's covered by each particular verse. And we're almost done with the study. We will finish it this year. Uh, we're now in Romans 14 verses 20 and 21. And if you've read the chapter on your own, then you'll know that I think it's like verse 22 or 23 or so. That's the end of the study. So let's look at these two verses, begin to look at this. We've been talking about Paul's um, trying to bring this uh, unity between Jewish sensitivities towards uh, uh, special days, feast days, fast days, holy days, um, things like that, and the uh, Gentile sensitivities, or lack thereof, from a Gentile Jewish perspective, of those same uh, topics. Of course, brought into that um, discussion, when we're talking about Jews and Gentiles in the first century, is going to be this topic of table fellowship. Something that was really, really important in the first century, but maybe not as important today. But back then, table fellowship between two groups signaled a shared covenant relationship with one another even if it was at a broad level. So to have Jews and Gentiles sit down at the same table and eat the same foods or at least share conversations across the table with one another, talking about typically religious Jews, I'm not talking about just secular settings where you got family members and that type of stuff. But in Paul's day, in Paul's culture, uh, as a religious Jew, uh, you know, keep in mind that Paul's the apostle sent to the Gentiles to bring them into this knowledge of God, faith in Messiah, and an obedience to the faith of Israel. Um, table fellowship was really important. So to convince a religious Jew that a Gentile has a place at the same table as you, as a Gentile, without going through any sort of conversion to Judaism or um, something like that, or the full-blown uh, keeping a full set of kosher uh, table rules, all of that was really um, a difficult uh, topic to undertake, a, a difficult um, uh, uh, undertaking, a difficult uh, feat to accomplish. So let's pick up the context there in our study of Romans. Paul is talking largely about table fellowship, food preferences, what um, religious Jews would consider clean and unclean from the perspective of 
um, God has allowed us to eat these animals, and Gentiles who were brought into our our communities need to um, have uh, what do we say consideration for our preferences or um, uh, adopt some semblance of kosher keeping. Otherwise, the whole thing gets ruined. Um, Gentiles being introduced to Torah would it wouldn't really necessarily of course be um accustomed to all of the rules that Jews followed but as we're going to find out there are differences of opinion when it comes to well where can we shop for food what is considered handled by everyone what is considered tainted by idolatry um god says it's okay to eat this food even if idolatry was involved or you know, religious Jews might say, well, no, we, we have our questions, we have our, our doubts, therefore we're going to adopt a vegetarian lifestyle when it comes to meat that was sold in the common marketplace, etc., etc. So those are all very real concerns for Paul's crowd. Here's how Romans 14, 20 and 21 reads in an ESV version of the Bible, and I'm going to read the uh, Greek as well, but let's just read first uh, ESV uh, of those first two verses, or on the, of 20 and 21. This will give us our context. Paul says in verse 20 of chapter 14 of Romans, do not for the sake of food, he's speaking to both groups, Jews and Gentiles, weak and strong, but primarily he already knows that the social dynamic is predominantly Greek, or I'm sorry, predominantly Gentile, and predominantly strong. So this would be like a Gentile, your average garden variety Gentile Christian, as it were, in Paul's community. Um, keep in mind, he hasn't been to Rome yet. He's going to travel there uh, within the next five years of the writing of this letter. But he's writing to a group of people that he has influence over as their um, as their spiritual leader. So he's telling them, Jews and Gentiles, weak and strong, which, in my understanding, weak and strong is is um, believer in Yeshua and non-believer in Yeshua, but still open to the idea that Yeshua is the Messiah from a Jewish perspective. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. What is the work of God? Salvation for Jew and Gentile, bringing of um, uh, those who are are part of Israel to uh, together with those who are from the nations. Salvation um, offered equally to anyone who would confess the name of Messiah, Yeshua, building up of one another as the body of Messiah. This is the work of God in, in its broadest sense. He says everything is indeed clean, right? And we're going to look at that uh, phrase tonight because that's really the crux of the matter from the 21st century perspective. Any, everything is indeed clean. But Paul says it is wrong for anyone to make another person stumble. I added the word person there. Another stumble by what he eats. So that's the first challenge. Um, you guys have your food differences. You're going to have your uh, your preferences, your religious differences. But no matter what, you can't destroy the work of God for the sake of something as, as seemingly mundane as food. With that, he continues, Paul says, It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble, which is very similar to something he's going to go on to say or did say in the letter to the Corinthians. If my brother, I'm paraphrasing, if my brother um, is going to uh, stumble because of, of what I eat, then it'd be better if I just don't eat meat at all. And that was in a context of eating meat offered to idols, which was typically, when he says meat, he's talking about um, not vegetables, but meat itself, as in animal meat. So 
he goes on to say in here in Romans, it's not, I'm sorry, it is good to, it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Here being the context, whatever the case, if there's some form of religious observance that you've been raised with, you know, speaking to the Jewish people, or the lack thereof speaking to the Gentile people, so you've been raised in an environment where it's okay to eat meat offered to idols, it's okay to eat uh, anything sold in the common marketplace, etc., etc., it's okay to eat that which God said um, steer clear of in, Levit- in Leviticus 11. If that's your, your background as a Gentile, then for the sake of your brother, the one that you're going to cause to stumble because or or lack thereof, then it's good not to eat meat or drink. It's good to to adjust your understanding of the the table fellowship rules so that you are in a place where peace and mutual building is the key, the goal. Strengthening your faith community, that's the goal. And so in that context, uh, food um, becomes you know, kind of an innocent medium caught up in the middle between these two uh, people groups. Let's go back up just real quick and read the Greek, and then we'll jump into the um, into my comments. Verse twenty says, "May eneken bromatas kataluta ergan tu theu panta men kathara ala kanto anthropo to to dia praskamatas estianti." Verse. Uh, 21 says, Kalanta me fagain krea meda pein oinan, and that's our, our uh, word there. I think oinan is the, nope, that's not the word I was looking for. Um, oinan meda in o, meda in ho ha, adelpha su pras kapte, and then we have like a little variant in the brackets, um, uh, a skandalizetai a and that'll be the end of the brackets there. All right, let's jump into my notes here. Um, this this set of notes here isn't that difficult to understand. It's not too terribly long. Let me see. There's one paragraph. There's another paragraph there. There's another paragraph. There's another paragraph. There's another paragraph. There's another paragraph. Uh, it's a little longer than we'll be able to cover tonight in the 30 minutes that I've allotted for this part of the study, but we'll just jump into it and see where we get. All right, so here's what I have to say in my notes concerning Paul's statement about um, everything is indeed clean. That's the phrase that jumps off the page for many people because if you ask your religious Jew of Paul's day, is everything clean? If you were using English like I'm supposing in my like example right now, which obviously didn't speak English back in Paul's day, but let's just pretend that the conversation we're having were taking place in, in English like we have in our Bibles here. Is everything clean? Well, then most religious Jews would say, no, everything is not clean. And if you ask a religious Jew today, uh, either Messianic or otherwise, is everything clean? Using English to its normative capacity, most religious Jews, uh, nearly every religious Jew, and many secular Jews would say, no, everything is not clean. But Having the same conversation with a non-Jewish person, for instance, in Paul's day or in our day, if you're using English, again, I know they didn't speak English in Paul's day, but just play along with my little story for a moment. If you ask a Gentile, is everything clean? Using the word English there without any religious context to um, bring to the table, pun intended, then um, you you probably get more of an answer like, yeah, I suppose everything's clean. I don't see any reason why not. At least in today's um, evangelical Christian circles, there's more of a relaxed 
answer to that question, is everything clean? Um, there are quite a number of Gentile Christians that I've interacted with who would say, yes, everything is clean, owing to the understanding that Jesus came to cleanse all foods, like it says in Mark 7, supposedly. Jesus cleansed all foods. Um, or the idea that uh, in Christian understanding, Jesus set us free from the ceremonial parts of the law, which would include keeping kosher. Um, Paul tells us we're no longer under the law earlier in Romans, interpreted by many in Christianity as, as we're no longer obligated to keep those religious rules found in the Old Testament, so we don't have to separate clean from unclean. Everything's clean, using air quotes of my fingers for those of you who can't see me, everything's clean in the sense that um, everything's uh, open to be uh, eaten. Everything's edible. We don't have to restrict ourselves from eating pork or shellfish or lobster or crab or octopus or anything like that. Or mouse, I suppose, right? The camel. Hey, let's bring all those into the uh, discussion. So it's understandable that from today's standards, from a Bible study perspective, if you have any Messianic Jews in the crowd of Gentile um, uh, uh, Bible studies or church gatherings, you're going to find that the that the Messianic Jews are probably trying to keep some sense of kosher. Uh, you know, saying that, well, Paul says everything's clean, but that can't really be what he means. So we're working from the idea of when we say everything is clean, when Paul says that in the English, does he mean that the Levitical list is really done away with? Is that really what Paul means? Everything's clean. Don't worry about what the Leviticus says. You can eat pork. You can eat shellfish. You can eat shrimp, ham, lobster, all that other stuff. Have a ham sandwich and, and get over it. Is he really meaning that everything's clean in that sense? Or perhaps is the Greek going to help us find out that there's a different meaning implied. Let's read my commentary and find out. I think you got, most of you already know my answer. Here's what I say. This set of verses, 20 and 21, continues Paul's thoughts from verses 14 through 18 above. Keep in mind, really, the entire context of the chapter 14 is about table fellowship and food preferences as they are um, interconnected and interrelated with Jew-Gentile relationships and fast days uh, that are brought into that. The overall context, though, however, is largely um, uh, what is going to allow you to remain united at table fellowship um, and community uh, gatherings and things like that. That's the overall larger context. Food or eating or something like that is mentioned throughout the uh, the chapter heavily. That is the context. So I say in my commentary, uh, in the earlier verses that we did look at, we learned that the word Shaul opts for when confessing that, quote, nothing is unclean itself. So we've got the Greek phrase that I've reproduced once again here in this uh, comments. It says, Udin koinon di hiautu. Four Greek words. Uh, if you can see it, if you, you can't read, if you can't read the Greek, at least look at my English. It says, the Greek phrase there is koinos. And um, I'll put a little graphic on the screen to show what we looked at previously, but there are two Greek words that were in common use in Paul's day to render the English that we render as unclean today. So if you have your average English Bible and you read through your Old and New Testament, you're going to find the word unclean in Leviticus, and you're going to find the word unclean right here in uh, Paul's letter as well as other places in the New Testament. Unknown to many who don't go back and look at the original language as the Hebrew or the Greek, there are two different, not only Hebrew words for unclean, but there's two different Greek words. So germane to our study here in the Greek is that one of those Greek words for unclean conveys the sense of 
a standard that God establishes that can't be um, relaxed by a man. So it's it's the king's standard. It's God's standard. It's not open to discussion. It cannot be moved. It's it's a it's a standard of clean uh, clean or unclean that God establishes in His Word. It's unmovable. By comparison or contrast, there is an additional standard that can be brought in, but alongside God's standard, known as man's standard, to sometimes either enhance or strengthen God's standard, or perhaps maybe augment or relax God's uh, or relax some of the standards from man's perspective. So um, the this word koinos is of the class that man brings in. To the discussion, it's not a, a God-established standard, as I understand these Greek words and their Hebrew counterparts. So, um, what Paul is really saying is, when he says nothing is unclean in and of itself, if we look up the Strong's or um, uh, lexiconic uh, meaning of this word "koinos," the root word for "koinon," then we'll find that it's rooted in this idea of common or shared by everybody, handled by everybody. Um, uh, the, the idea that it, something doesn't have any sacredness to it. It's not hallowed. It's not sanctified. It can be handled or touched uh, or eaten uh, by a, a wider variety of people. And of course, this applies not just to food, but even other utensils and, and objects uh, used uh, in various uh, uh, settings. So when Paul says nothing is unclean of itself, Let's read down through my commentary. Um, I say it this way. Shaul is discussing matters of biblically defined food. Remember God's standard. Being declared by one man, right? So man's standard as, quote, okay to consume, quote, unquote, quote, unquote, versus another man, right? Context declaring, quote, it not okay to consume, in quote. So here's the scenario. God says, here's a piece, here's an animal, it's permissible for you, he's speaking to Israel, it's permissible for you to slaughter it and eat it. Let's just use um, lamb as an example. So God says it's okay to, to uh, uh, slaughter lamb and to you know drain the blood and follow that ritual, right? And then uh, you can partake of eating the the flesh of lamb after you've done the ritual of draining the blood and offering it to God and things like that. So in the end, lamb meat is acceptable. We knew that we know this is true from reading our Old Testament. However, let's suppose in Paul's day, and this is real life supposition, by the way. I don't really I really don't have to make this up, but let's suppose you had a pagan. Um, a temple that brought in a lamb and used that lamb in an idolatrous ceremony to a pagan god, and then after offering that lamb up for sacrifice to their pagan deity, they passed the meat through uh, out to the back end of the temple, the pagan temple, and sold it in the common marketplace for a profit, right? There's a lot of uh, meat there. Why waste it? The priests and the participants can't eat it all. Um, so let's just turn a profit and um, uh, sell it in the common marketplace, uh, you know, section it up at the butcher. Well, this is a real-life uh, occurrence. This happened in Paul's day. Uh, that's basically how pagan temples functioned. On the front end was the religious part of it, and on the back end, was a butcher, so um, or or the uh, the pass through to the uh, the butcher part of a uh, of a supermarket, so to say. So in those cases, that lamb, which was otherwise permissible from God's 
standard in Leviticus became disqualified by religious Jews based on its usage in the pagan temple and its presence in the um, the common marketplace that was uh, uh, frequented by non-religious people groups, right? In other words, pagans frequented the temple, non-Jews frequented that temple. And so this meat was handled by everyone. It was touched by too many people. Thus, it, it was declared by God to be okay. It was clean. But a religious Jew, a man, is going to come along and say, it's unclean. And he's going to use this Greek word, um, related to uh, in other words it's 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 common it's it's not permissible it's t it's been touched by too many people it's koinos and so that's where we have those comparison and contrast between what a man says is okay or not okay and what god says is okay or not okay that's how we better understand what paul's saying when he says everything is clean let's look at the context his conclusion to this passage here in romans is found near the final verses and so let's read uh, the context of jump back for a second go all the way back up to verse 17 and read the context through to verse 23 which basically is the end of the chapter but this will catch the, the kind of the greater context of what paul's trying to convey to his audience within the idea of clean and unclean he says in verse 17 for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, shalom, and joy in the Ruach HaKodesh, right? Righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. This is, must be um, uh, David Stern's rendering, I believe. Let me look. I think it is, yeah. Uh, David Stern's rendering of the Bible. That's why it says Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit. So in verse 18, within the context, he says, anyone who serves the Messiah in this fashion, what fashion? The fashion where you prioritize your food preferences as over and against what community you're worshiping with. Eating and drinking must be um, put as kind of second place when it comes to building up and and uh, fellowshipping with your fellow faith community. Shalom and joy and rule and, and uh, shalom righteousness, you know, righteousness, joy and shalom and the Holy Spirit are all. Um, ingredients or elements of any strong healthy uh, faith community um the food doesn't care whether you're having righteousness joy and peace right the food doesn't care so the table fellowship is come is either going to be made or broken by your um uh how do we say um deferring to uh kind of differences that other people have and so um forcing your own opinion on the matter is just going to lead to judgmental and and um, kind of a hurt feelings, judgmental attitudes, and the kind of things that Paul describes at the very early part of this chapter. So Paul wants people to adopt a servant mentality, just like Messiah did. And he's going to go on to say that in, in chapter 15, if we were to continue our study on through that part of, our, of the book of Romans. The idea is that um, uh, Paul understands that uh, uh, the, the each people group needs to look out for the well-being of the other. This is why he says in verse 18, anyone who serves Messiah in this fashion, he continues, both pleases God and wins the approval of other people. So there is the idea of fellowship with one another, the idea of serving one another. Obviously, in the Messianic community, this means serving one another in the Christ-like fashion, not just serving people to 
please them, to be people pleasers. That's not really the kind of peace and mutual building that Paul's aiming at. He's not looking for a generic amicability between people groups where we kind of agree to disagree and live and let live. Can't we just all get along mentality? You know, um, it's it's got to be stronger than that. Our bond with one another as Jews and Gentiles boils down to our shared understanding is... Um, a covenant people brought together by the sacrifice of our Messiah, Yeshua. Jew and Gentile both made righteous by the Holy Spirit that's been poured out among us. That's the strong um, uh, uh, peace and mutual building that I looked at. Uh, you know, Go back and watch uh, YouTube video number 159, 158, 157, those, those last two or three videos. Um, that's what I was hitting at. So it's within that context in verse 19 that it says that he says, So then let us pursue the things that make for shalom and mutual upbuilding. And so what are those things? Um, is it the table fellowship that's going to make for mutual shalom and upbuilding? Yes, that will be part of it. But within the overall context, if you read Paul's letter as a whole, and don't just limit it to the food topics that we're talking about tonight, overall, over and over again in Paul's letters, he emphasizes the covenant, the shared covenant relationship that Jews and Gentiles now have in Messiah. Um, the fact that the barrier of separation has been broken down that was erected by men seeking to separate Jew from Gentile. The strong covenantal gnomism, ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism perspective that was being pushed by religious Judaisms in Paul's day that sought to separate Jews from Gentiles, even still does today. Thus, we have the separation of church and synagogue and the general consensus that Jews and Gentiles need to be separated uh, that even carry over into some messianic circles, you know, shame on them. But it's prevalent in rabbinic Judaism. It's just kind of standard halakha that Jews and Gentiles are separated, particularly at table fellowship, because of the different covenant relationship that Jews and Gentiles have with God, supposedly. But in Christian circles, we're not supposed to be following along with that the Torah is for Jews only mindset, or salvation is for Jews only, or the Holy Spirit is for Jews only type of mindset. It's unfortunate it does carry over into Christian circles. Circles in many cases, where if you ask your average Christian, hey, um, should you keep Sabbath kosher and, and, and festivals and wear tzitzit and the like, many Christians will say either A, we're no longer under the law because it's been done away with, or B, we don't have to keep those things because we're not Jewish. All right, so we do still have some carryover. Well, in Paul's day, the mutual uh, shalom and uh, mutual building is going to be brought about as the Holy Spirit brings us together. It can't be a man's program that makes for genuine shalom and mutual building. Yes, we're going to partner with God's Spirit in uh, strengthening our communities. There's our part to play, absolutely. There are responsibilities that we have to line up with, absolutely. But in the end, if we are not strengthening our communities under the shared banner of Messiah, get our eyes off of each other and judging each other and put our eyes back on Jesus, right? get our eyes off of the, um, uh, the way my brother looked at me wrong or hurt me or hurt my feelings or whatever, get our eyes off of that, get out of the flesh and get into the Spirit like Paul's going to tell us in Galatians. Walk not by the flesh, but walk by the Spirit. Right? It's the Spirit walk that Paul, Paul already discussed in Romans chapter 8. Living by the Spirit fulfills the righteous requirement of the law. We've got to take our mind off of focusing on how he hurt me and wounded me and get our eyes on how can I bless my brother? How can I build him up? How can I um, defer to him and serve him as Messiah serves the body? 
That's the mutual building, the strength, the shalom that we're looking at. That's going to strengthen our communities as Jews and Gentiles today. So that's the context. Paul continues in verse 20. Don't tear down God's work for the sake of food. Again, what is God's work? Which he's going to mention in verse um, uh, um uh, uh, 20 and 21, and he mentions it elsewhere in the, in his letters. Um, the work of God, again, bringing the community of Jews and Gentiles together. This whole eschatological understanding that Paul came to that Israel was being, um, uh, enhanced by the inclusion of the Gentiles. Israel wasn't being displaced by the inclusion of the Gentiles. Israel wasn't being replaced, right? Replacement theology, forms of dispensationalism, uh, supersessionism, things like that. Israel isn't losing her covenant place. She's simply becoming who she's always been designed to be from the very beginning. Jew and Gentile uh, with genuine faith in God and genuine faith in God's Messiah. So the work of God is broader than just Jewish believers worshiping Messiah. And the work of God is larger than just Gentiles worshiping Jesus as Messiah. The work of God is Jew and Gentile in the shared faith community worshiping God together as one unified people group. We don't lose our distinctives. The one new, excuse me, the one new man doesn't erase Jewishness or Gentileness if I can make up a word, it doesn't erase male or female. It doesn't even erase slave and free. The um, whole idea is that um, redemption is offered equally, regardless of your social status, class, uh, case uh, status. And we know that they practice a, a caste system, class system in Paul's day, at least from a religious perspective, that um, was being misused. The work of God is going to tear all that down and bring us together, worshiping in the Holy Spirit together, following after God's Torah equally as for Jew and Gentile. Paul says it best, true enough, all things are clean. There's our word koinos in the Greek. All things are innocent. All things are um, in a place where they can be declared by man either one way or the other. This is true. It's not terribly wrong to say that that which God says is permissible, we're going to say is we, we can't eat it. There's nothing terribly wrong with steer, with with, with um, saying no to some uh, forms of food if you have to, if you question the origin of the food from a religious perspective. There's nothing um, biblically wrong with that declaration of declaring something as koinos, that is cl- uh, uh, unclean or something like that, or common as, you know, there's different ways that this is tra- uh, translated. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. Everything really is innocent. That's what the Greek, the force of the Greek word to clean here is, katharos. Um, I think it's katharos. I'll have to go back and look at that later. Uh, what Paul's really trying to convey, and we'll look at this in my commentary, is this idea that it should not be food that that um, tears the community apart. You should be um, flexible enough that uh, you can respect the scruples of uh, the person sitting across the table from you, whether you know if he's a religious Jew and you're not, and even to the point that um, you can still eat at the same table with them because they are your brother in Christ or they are your brother in the faith community of God. That is what's going to unify you. That's going to um, overrule your personal preference to uh, separate from one another just because you disagree with the food that they're eating. All things are in a place where they can be either 
um, accepted or rejected uh, based on your personal preference. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. That's what he means by the word clean. They're innocent. But he goes on to say within the context, what's definitely wrong right, is for anybody by his eating to cause someone to fall away. And within the context of Jews and Gentiles, I imagine since the Jews were the minority in, in these communities that Paul's writing to, imagine that they would have been the ones who were easily offended and turned away by maybe a common Gentile sentiment that, hey, we can eat anything, just bring it all and put it all on the table, let's just chow down. We don't have to worry because everything's um, acceptable, and we don't really care if the Jews like it or don't like it. If they don't like it, then they can, there's the door. Okay, that type of um, attitude towards Jewish sensitivity is not going to build up the community in Paul's day. It's going to tear it down. And it's going to cause someone to fall away from the faith community. Not necessarily fall away from salvation. I don't think that's the falling away that Paul's talking about in verse 20 here. I think he's talking about a shared faith community where Jews and Gentiles are being brought under the same roof and fellowshipping with one another and having discussions about Messiah and things like that. Keep in mind the weak Jew that I describe in the letter, right? The unconvinced Jew. Uh, he's not messianic yet, but he's uh, he's going to church to um, see if this is the prospect to see what he's heard in rumor from these Gentiles that Jesus is. He's going there to investigate and determine whether it's true or not that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, if he's just pushed out of pushed out the door because of his religious preferences, well, then he's going to stumble. He's not going to ever accept Messiah. He's going to fall away from that fellowship altogether. I think that's what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about losing your salvation. Um, I think Paul believes that once you're truly saved, then you are always saved. If you are truly saved, then you would not be in a position where you could lose that salvation. Verse 21, what is good is not to eat meat or drink wine. We read this. Or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Again, um, it's in the same context of someone falling away. Keep in mind that Paul already has this idea when he talks about brother that in the, I believe in the, um, in the limited sense of the word and more specific sense, brother means brother Christian. Whether he's a Jew or Gentile, that wouldn't matter. Brother to Paul means brother Christian. But in a broader sense, in Paul's day, maybe not so much today, it's it's not as easy to see. But in Paul's day, it was easier to see this dynamic because we didn't have the separation between the church and the synagogue. Brother, in Paul's day, um, more could include, from a larger, broader perspective, your faith brother, your, your brother in the faith community. And this was brought on to extend to the religious Jewish community, the synagogue communities that Paul was raised in. Uh, in other words, it was a larger umbrella term that could be um, used. So when he says, um, don't do anything that causes your brother to stumble, uh, both applications would work. First and foremost, and I'm closing with this, we'll stop by reading these verses, and then we'll stop and uh, uh, pick this up next week. Paul's first and foremost going to want brother Christians and Jew, uh, brother Christian uh, Gentiles and Jews to have the best interests of the fellow Christian Jew and Gentile. That's going to be your first responsibility, because that's the immediate faith community that Messiah... Uh, 
finds its strongest application in your your fellow brother Christian. But beyond that, because you're going to you Gentile Christians uh, are going to be uh, having encounters with religious Jews who might not be Messianic yet, then you still need to keep this. Um, how should we say it? Um, uh, cordiality or uh, be aware of the sensitivities and not offend, openly offend um, Jewish people who are of a religious persuasion who may not be a part of your community just yet. They don't espouse faith in Jesus just yet, but they're open to the prospect and they're, they might even visit your congregation someday, that type of thing. So I think that's the, what Paul would admonish. Let's finish reading uh, just this set of scriptures and then we'll draw this part of our study to a close and we'll uh, pick this up next week. Verse 22, Paul says, The belief you hold about such things keep between yourself and God. And uh, within the context, I'm gonna, I think we're going to find that the belief is the halakha, the nature of your perspective on what is clean, what is unclean, what's permissible to eat, what's not permissible to eat. Um, uh, he's. He, it, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but um, he's not talking about your belief in Jesus. The belief you hold about such things keep between yourself. He, Paul's not trying, obviously, not trying to tell uh, Gentiles don't tell the Jews that you believe in Jesus, right? If you believe in Jesus, you'll offend them. Belief you hold about such things about Messiah, keep between yourself and God. No, that's obviously not what Paul said. I actually heard one commentary, or read one commentary that suggested that perhaps Paul was telling the Gentile Christians don't share their faith with uh, religious Jews because it'll offend them. Um, keep your belief in Jesus to yourself. I'm thinking, what are you kidding me? All right, that can't be the, 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 the case. Paul definitely wants you to have an evangelistic perspective. Please, please, definitely share your faith about Messiah with religious Jews. Okay, uh, happy the person who is free of self-condemnation when he approves of something. The approval or um, or uh, disapproval is within the context of the food that you might find in the marketplace that was permissible by God to eat, but perhaps questionable because of, of its origins, right? So we're talking about koinos issues. And then verse 23, um, Paul concludes by saying, but the doubter, right, he comes under condemnation if he eats, right? Notice he even supplies the context of verse 22 in verse 23 by saying eating. The doubter, the doubter what? The doubter eater. <laughs> the doubter eater. I like that. I just made that up on the spot. The doubter eater comes under, under condemnation if he eats. Why? Because his action is not based based on trust, right? It's based on, say, suspicion, or it's based on superstition, or it's based on peer pressure, right? He's giving in just because everyone around him is doing it. It's not something that he really wants to do. It's something that's um, uh, just, uh, it's, it's compulsion. We'll talk about that uh, next week. And Paul says, anything not based on trust, and he's talking about food um, choices here, anything not based on trust is a sin, and the emphasis of those particular verses was mine. So that's going to do it for our Romans 14 Unplugged uh, commentary for tonight. We'll pick this up next week and keep going with it. But for now, let's turn to exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity, and take the next uh, half an hour or so uh, to look at this part of our commentary. We're within the context of talking about who or what is the Holy Spirit, and specifically we're talking about the Spirit that comes to dwell within us as believers. Is it the Spirit of God? Is it the Spirit of Christ? Is it the Holy Spirit? Your answer should be yes, right? But if you think about it, since there are three persons to the triune nature of God, those of us who are Trinitarians hold to a one 
what, and three, whose concept of God, he's complex in his nature, then it's not unusual to have discussions of, is it God's spirit inside of me? Is it Christ's spirit inside of me? Or is it the person of the Holy Spirit inside of me? And would that mean that there's three separate spirits or maybe four because there's still Ariel's spirit in there, right? Kind of humorously thinking. But within that context, we, we were entertaining the question two weeks ago of, based on which spirit comes to reside within us, we actually enjoy genuine salvation. And I'm of the understanding that there is this overlap on purpose. There's a kind of a blurring of the lines when we're talking about, is it the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, or the Spirit of Messiah? And the answer is yes, because in the mystery of the Godhead, in the mystery of understanding uh, who God is, the complexity of who God is allows us to understand that genuine salvation cannot take place without the genuine Holy Spirit taking up residency with us, and more to the point where we're going to jump into my commentary tonight, is that we must confess that Jesus is the Messiah in order for genuine salvation to take place. So when we have this discussion on whose spirit is inside of us, if we say God's spirit and we leave out the um, understanding of who Messiah is, Jesus, as that Messiah, well then we cannot experience genuine salvation in that understanding. God's spirit is expressed through the person of Messiah when it comes to salvation. It is Jesus in me, the hope of salvation. It Christ in you, Christ in me, Christ in you, the hope of salvation, Paul would go on to say. So um, that's the context of, of, the, uh, of my quote here. You can see on my screen. Eternal salvation is, of course, exclusive to placing one's faith in the Messiah Yeshua. And, I say, this type of salvation surely spans the distance from the Old to the New Testament. And we recall Yeshua's exclusive statement in John 14, 6, where he says categorically that he is, quote, the way, truth, and life, and that no one can come to the Father except through me, end quote. This exclusive truth statement, I say in my commentary, his truth statement must be efficacious in both directions of what sci-fi buffs would call the space-time continuum. So if you could jump into a time machine and travel back in time and ask Moses, how can you be genuinely saved? We understand that genuine salvation, Moses should come up with an answer that's um, uh, articulated in a faith in the Messiah who's going to come. This one that God would place his name upon, the angel of the Lord. He would probably use language that's tied to what we would see in the Old Testament already. You know, angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, the captain of hev heaven's hosts, uh, the captain of heaven's armies, um, the word of the Lord that came to Abraham, right? The davar Adonai in the Hebrew, or the memra in the in the Aramaic, um, the angel of the Lord, right? The malach Adonai, or um, uh, something like that. Um, this is the concept, this one that God would put his name on, this angel, this this one that would go before Israel, but they could not um, offend because God wouldn't, because he wouldn't um, forgive them because God's name resides in him. This messenger of the Lord, right? The, the, the uh, angel that um, Joshua encountered with sword drawn, right? Uh, you know, who are you? Are you for us or are you against us? You know, take off your sandals. Um, I'm the angel of the Lord. You know, Joshua bows down. Um, this figure, Moses understood, pointed towards this person who would bring redemption. And so um, it's important to realize that within this context, 
the salvation that Jesus offers through his blood goes all the way back to the first man. There is no salvation outside of Jesus, and therefore, when we're talking about discussions on which Holy Spirit, which Spirit resides within us from a salvific perspective, which Holy Spirit brings about that genuine salvation of an individual, it can only be the understanding of the Spirit of Messiah that's dwelling in us. That's not to the exclusion of God's Spirit or the Holy Spirit. It is God's Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit. That's the mystery of the Trinity all over again. So that's the context of our discussion here. Let's look at this. I say in my commentary... Uh, using Father Abraham as his example, Paul teaches this very truth about the exclusivity uh, of Jesus, uh, the name of, or, or the person of Jesus for salvation, right? Uh, the exclusivity of that, he uses Father Abraham in one of his many spirit and gospel masterpieces that you'll find in his letters, and this time to the churches at Galatia. So we're going to pick up an example that Paul gives us about how did Abraham be counted as righteous. He does this in Romans chapter 4, but right now we're going to look at it here in Galatians chapter 3. Paul understands and believes without a doubt that Abraham was genuinely saved. However, for the sake of the discussion for the Gentiles in his purview, right here in Galatians, Paul needs to articulate that Abraham's salvation was brought about by his genuinely trusting in the promise that God revealed to him at the time. Did God tell Abraham that the Messiah to come would be named Jesus? I don't have any indication that that's the case. What we do have is that God revealed himself to Abraham in such a way that Abraham's faith locked a hold, laid a hold of that aspect of genuine faith that only comes by placing your faith in, from Abraham's perspective, the coming word of the Lord, or the actual word of the Lord who was having a dialogue with Abraham right then and there. Germane to the discussion for Paul's readership in Galatians is that genuine salvation is exclusive to placing your faith in Jesus. You cannot be saved generically by placing your faith generically in God, like the religious Jews were teaching or were supposing in Paul's day. We're saved because we're uh, separated by God as the people group of God, as Israelites, and this is um, confirmed by our Jewish identity as Israelites. And therefore, the saying went in Paul's day, if you want to be righteous, in the forensic sense, I, aka saved, if you want to be righteous and receive God's spirit, then you've got to join your lot with Israel. You've got to leave your Gentile ethnicity behind. You've got to convert, become a Jew, and then God will grant salvation and Holy Spirit and filling to you. Paul said no. That is not the way you receive genuine salvation. That's not the way you're filled with the spirit of God. Let me tell you the genuine way. And so Paul reached into his Tanakh and pulled out the example of Abraham. Let's read it. Here's what Paul has to say. Considering the that the Gentiles in Galatia were um, heavily um, uh, voting on the idea of undertaking proselyte conversion in mass as a whole group, as a people group, right? The whole community was going to throw their lot in with this proselyte conversion program. Paul lambasts him. He just lashes out at them. Oh, 
foolish Galatians. David Stern's version, I think, says something like, you stupid Galatians, right? Who has bewitched you, right? Who cast a spell over you, right? The, this whole idea of proselyte conversion for the sake of ostensible covenant community, covenant membership and right and salvation that it brings. It was before your eyes that what? Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He is the standard that you were taught. Listen up, he says. Let me ask you only this. Now look at my highlighted part or underlying part. Did you receive the spirit? Pause. What spirit? The spirit of God? The spirit of Christ? Or the Holy Spirit? Well, Paul doesn't differentiate right here. He simply says the spirit. But within the context of what Paul's trying to um, explain to his readership, as we're going to go see, it is the genuine spirit that comes into a believer who places his faith in Jesus. Thus, we could say it's the spirit of Messiah, like he actually says so in in, uh, Romans chapter 8. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law? this proselyte program, or by hearing with faith, which is placing your faith in Jesus. So the contrast is not between keeping the Torah for salvation versus believing in Jesus. The contrast is between proselyte conversion, changing your ethnic status, and then becoming a Jew, and then keeping Torah, versus uh, having genuine faith in Jesus. Which one of these things brought about the presence of the genuine spirit of Messiah within your midst? Are you so foolish, those of you who are considering proselyte conversion, are you so foolish having begun by the genuine spirit of Messiah? I'm filling in the blanks there. Are you so foolish that you're now being perfected by your conversion to Judaism, your perfection by your ethnicity, this perfection by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things as a believer in vain? If indeed it was in vain, right, uh, whether you truly are believers or not, I believe you are believers, and therefore it wasn't truly in vain. Um, I know the Spirit's been working miracles among you. He's going to say this in the next verse here. Um, therefore, I know you're genuine, but this idea that you're um, trying to uh, perfect what God has already perfected in you because of your faith in Jesus, you're perfecting it by your ethnicity, conversion to Judaism. That's not going to work. The Holy Spirit is already in your midst. He goes on to say in verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you, notice Paul already believes that they are genuine faith believers. So they're kind of taking a step backwards. He works miracles among you. Does God do this by your ethnicity because you've converted to Judaism? The so-called works of the law program, which was uh, begun for Gentiles at the um, conversion level and completed by the um, continuing continuing reliance uh, and maintenance of Torah. That's the whole program in a nutshell. Um, It didn't start by keeping Torah. It started by changing your ethnicity from Gentile to Jew. It was perfected in in Paul's view. I'm sorry, in the Judaisms of Paul's day view. It was perfected by your maintenance to keep Torah. So don't don't get that wrong there. This whole program is simply called works of the law. So it gives a kind of a um, uh, a, a halakha, uh, um, an idea, a um, um, uh, just a, a, a two step program in Paul's day. Paul disagreed with it, but originally he agreed with it as a as a as a non messianic Jew. He he was part and parcel. That was just kind of the standard way of thinking in Paul's day as a religious Jew. But once his eyes were opened to who Messiah was and how his righteousness was brought about. Uh, 
uh, as he placed his faith in Jesus and was filled with the genuine spirit of Messiah, a.k.a. God's spirit, a.k.a. the Holy Spirit, then Paul understood that it wasn't his ethnic status, it wasn't his flesh that brought about this in filling of the Spirit. So, we're still within the context of how was Abraham justified? Well, Paul's going to get to that. Look what Paul says. Does he, God, who supplies the Spirit to you, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Messiah, the Spirit of of, of the Holy One, all wrapped up, but he's within the context of salvation, it's the Spirit of Messiah. Does he supply the Spirit to you and work miracles among you by your ethnicity, your works of law program, which starts with your Jewish conversion or Jewish identity and is, is completed with your uh, uh, maintaining the Torah? Is that all done by hearing uh, is it done by um, your works of law, your ethnicity, or is it done by hearing of faith? So those are the two doors of, of, um, of choice before the Galatians. And then, with those, with those rounds of rhetorical questions, Paul knows the answer already. He just wants them to know which answer is the right one. Within that context, he then begins to bring Abraham in as the model of salvific faith for someone who places their faith in God's promises, not in their own flesh, not in their own righteousness, not in their own ethnicity, not in their own social status, not in their own obedience, or etc., etc. Here's how Paul describes it. Look at verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This statement that Paul brings into his uh, letter in in, uh, Galatians here, uh, the quote, believed God and counted to him as righteousness, end quote, that, that quote from Galatians uh, 5, 6 is drawn from Genesis 15, 6. There, um, uh, Moses describes the status of Abraham as counted as genuinely righteous in God's size, sight, and it's the um, type of righteousness that is to be understood from a salvation perspective. It's not a generic faith in God and keeping his commandments type of righteousness like most religious Jews were and would, either in Paul's day or today, would uh, confess. You ask your average religious Jew, are you righteous? They're going to tell you, yeah. Why are you righteous? Well, I keep the commandments. I am a covenant member in Israel. I steer clear of idolatry. I say the prayers like every good Jew should. I give to charity. Um, I uh, do good deeds. Right? They've got their whole three-step uh, process of becoming righteous. The, 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 the prayer, the, the prayer, the charity, um, uh, the good deeds that they do, um, the... the uh, um, repeating of the prayers, the, the keeping of the commandments, um, all, the, all of that is wrapped up in the package as a religious Jew uh, on top of the fact that they were born a Jew. All of that is where they get their righteousness. They don't confess faith in Jesus as their form of righteousness. But Paul says, wait a minute, wait a minute, you foolish Gentile uh, Galatians. If you want to be righteous, you've got to do it the way that Abraham did it. And I'm kind of giving away the answer here to his his rhetorical questions. But the the way the where he's going to go with this is: Did Abraham convert? Did he become righteous? What was his ethnic status when God declared him as righteous in Genesis 15:6? Was he a circumcised Jew yet? If you go back and do your homework, read your Bible carefully, read your Tanakh. Abraham's not circumcised until Genesis 17. It's two chapters earlier that 
Moses writes that he's righteous, that he was counted as righteous before God. This means Abraham was uncircumcised when God counted him as righteous. So let's keep reading it. Let's just let Paul describe it best. Just as Abraham believed God, that's salvation lingo, and it was counted to him as righteousness, right? Believe God is not generic here. If you go back and read the story, it's actually his belief in the word of the Lord and the promises that God was giving him towards multiplying his offspring. And in that in that moment, Abraham is beginning to have his heart open to the the reality that only God can bring about the promises uh, that are rooted in the word of the Lord. And this is going to come full circle when he takes Isaac up the mountain in Genesis chapter 22 and uh, raises the knife to slay him. And God brings in that sacrificial lamb. And then the pictures just open right before his eyes, right? He actually, I believe, sees the cross event uh, fast forward in a a vision and in a prophetic uh, glimpse of Messiah's death. He understands that this is uh, the plan of God, and it's just string. It strengthens his salvation experience that he experienced way back in chapter 15. So, Paul says Abraham is a genuine believer. God reckons him as genuinely righteous, meaning salvific righteousness. He's saved. And how is it that this came to be? Look at verse 7. Know then, Paul says, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It's not those who are Jewish per se who are the sons of Abraham. By contrast, it's not the conversion that turns you into a child of Abraham. It's not your Jewish ethnicity and your uh, maintenance of Torah that's going to bring about your um, being brought into into the uh, family of God as described by Abraham's family. No, Paul says the scripture foreseeing that God would justify, there's that again, that word justify is salvation lingo, would justify the Gentiles by faith. Faith in what? Faith in who? Faith in the Messiah, right? Justify the Gentiles by faith. What did the scripture do? It preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. This is unmistakable. Abraham had the gospel. So we're talking about this Trinity discussion. Who or what a spirit comes to dwell within genuine believers. Is it the generic spirit of God, like many Jews claim to have? Is it the spirit of Christ, like Christians claim to have? Or is it the Holy Spirit, right? Who or what spirit brings about genuine salvation and the fellowship that is enjoyed by a genuine child of God, child of Abraham? The faith that Paul recognizes that brings about the salvation experience is none other than faith in Messiah. The genuine gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. What does Paul say? This gospel says, or saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Now you're thinking, how is that the gospel? How is that the gospel? In you, Abraham, shall all the nations be blessed? Well, the bigger picture is that, and you have to go back and read through Genesis and follow through with the rest of um, the, the the scriptures that convey this, but the, the, the idea is that Paul understood from a larger perspective that God was telling Abraham, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. I'm, gonna, I'm in a larger family, both naturally and spiritually. I'm going to bring about the birth of an offspring of, of a, a member of your family, namely the Messiah, who through his sacrifice is going to bring and offer salvation to anyone who places their trust in him. 
This is going to be typified, of course, by the sacrifice that we're going to read that we would read about in the Tanakh if we were from Abraham's perspective. But God gave Abraham enough of this gospel that Jew and Gentile can be made righteous in God as they place their faith in Messiah instead of changing their ethnicity. God gave enough of this gospel message to Abraham that it was encapsulated in the phrase, in you shall all the nations be blessed. The key to understanding the scope of the gospel in this statement that Paul lifts from various places throughout the Tanakh, but more, most specifically in Genesis chapter 12, is that um, salvation is rooted in this faith in God's promises, not limited to whatever nation you come from. So from Abraham's perspective, it's important enough that Abraham knows that the nationals, the nations, those around you, they shall be blessed, not because they convert and become children of Abraham through conversion, but because they are going to eventually do the same thing that Abraham did, which is place their faith in that promise that God gave to Abraham, um, namely uh, the bringing in of the Messiah. This salvation, this genuine gospel that Paul preaches, ran counter to the pseudo-gospel that religious Jews were pushing in their day. Their version of gospel was limited to Jewish ethnicity and Torah maintenance. It was restricted by your social status. It wasn't offered to anyone from the nations until someone from nations lost that national status and took on Jewish status. That was their gospel. And that's why Paul says earlier in Galatians, if anyone comes and preaches another gospel, let them be accursed. Paul does not believe that genuine salvation is brought about by generic faith in God and conversion to Judaism. And of course, the gospel is certainly not restricted to whatever nationality you uh, bring to the table. So this is the context of our understanding from modern Christian perspective of exactly what spirit is dwelling within us. Is it the generic spirit of God, like religious Jews claim to have? Or is it this exclusive spirit of Messiah that dwells in us that causes us to cry, Abba, Father, Daddy God, like Paul is going to talk about in Romans uh, let's keep reading Galatians here. Uh, verse 9, Paul says, So then, remember, he's challenging the Galatian Gentiles. Where is your loyalty? Where is your devotion? Where is your faith? What is the object of your faith? How is this going to affect your salvation? If you're going to move towards the object of faith known as conversion to Judaism and obedience to Torah, then you're going to end up in the wrong place because that's not the genuine salvation that Abraham had. If you want to go down the path that Abraham walked and be counted as genuine sons and daughters of Abraham and take that road of being blessed like Abraham was, then Paul's going to say it this way. Those who are of faith, and he's talking within the context of salvation-based faith, and we're closing with this, by the way, salvation-based faith, genuine faith in Messiah. These ones, they are the blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So this is the way we understand the exclusive nature of the Spirit of God, yes, it becomes difficult for us to articulate. Is it God's Spirit that's in me? Is it the Spirit of Jesus that's in me? Is it the Holy Spirit? 
Don't think too hard. Just say yes. It is God's Spirit. Because God's Spirit is Messiah's Spirit. And the Spirit of Messiah is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is very God. The, the full deity of the Holy Spirit is seen in the overlapping of the um, Spirit, the way he is described throughout the Bible. Arguably, since this is the particular person that we're talking about right now in our Trinity study, arguably... Uh, the spirit is not the front man. He's the behind the scenes guy. He's the he's the one pulling strings um, or pushing buttons, uh, but from an invisible perspective. Hello, he's a spirit. Last time I checked, you can't see spirits unless he wants to pull a little theophany and show up looking like a dove or uh, showing up sounding like a mighty rushing wind or tongues of fire that land on your head. He can do that if he wants. He's fully God. He can theophanate. I'm making up a word again, right? He can pull a theophany like God does, right? He has, he, he has that capacity. But for the most part, he's invisible. He's a spirit. So it's understandable that God is the one who shows up in the scriptures as the foundational person of the Godhead who establishes all things. He's primarily the one who's given creatorship um, uh, creatorship credit throughout most of the Bible. Uh, the natural way to understand uh, the Bible is that God created everything, right? I mean, that's the way the Bible opens up in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't say in the beginning Jesus created, even though we know that Jesus is co-creator. And it doesn't say in the beginning the Holy Spirit created, even though we know the Holy Spirit shares those attributes as well in other parts of the Bible. The point I'm trying to make as I'm closing is that it's understandable that as we look at the nature of God from not the ontological perspective like identity, but from the economic perspective like works, like um, uh, uh, actions that he performs. That's economic versus uh, ontological trinity. The economic trinity describes God the Father as the foundational source of all things, the creator, the one who establishes covenants, the one who, who uh, builds up nations, the one who, who um, uh, 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 draws people unto himself, etc., etc., the one who sends his son into the world, the one who, who pour, uh, breathes his Holy Spirit into individuals and causes them to, to do miraculous things like that. Um, that's the Father. Within the same picture, the, the, the Son steps to the front of humanity, and He's the front man. He's the one that we all can see, touch, taste, feel. Uh, he's the one that we can interact with, right? Yeshua's the one that said, um, uh, 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 eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. That's why I used the, the example of taste. Um, Yeshua is the one that is visible. Not God. God is also invisible. God is the one who says, you can't see me and live. But Jesus says, you can see me. And like he said to Thomas of old, um, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. Right? Don't say, show us the Father. If you've seen me, and you are seeing me, then you've seen the Father. I am the visible representation of the invisible Father. Like Paul's going to go on to teach. So, Jesus is the one that's visible. But then, carrying along that same um, economic trinity model, the Holy Spirit is not meant to be seen up front. He's not meant to be clearly articulated in some form or fashion, uh, like he's pulling strings and things like that. His role is to um, strengthen the words of Messiah, to to support and comfort us as believers, to strengthen our communities, to, to um, bring about the fellowship 
uh, that we enjoy as believers, right? The communion of uh, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit uh, to give us the assurance of our salvation as this this down payment to comfort us like the paraclete that we read about in John, the one who comes alongside us and comforts us when we are troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled, Yeshua says. Believe in God, believe, believe also in me, right? I'm going to go and prepare this place and I'm going to go, but, and I'm paraphrasing all, all of like John 15 and 16 and 17, but Yeshua says, I'm going to send another helper the comforter this is the role of the holy spirit so he's the one that brings about genuine salvation it's this understanding of the spirit that comes into our hearts as the spirit of messiah but he's the holy spirit and yet he's the one that is uh caused genuine salvation in abraham the man of faith and so it's with that that we can draw our trinity study to a close we'll keep looking at this idea of the way the gospel's tied into uh, being genuinely filled with the genuine Spirit of God. Uh, whether you articulate that as the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, or the Spirit of Messiah, yes, there's some leeway in the Scriptures because we're talking about very God when we're talking about being. So, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, it's still God, right? God is. And yet, when we're talking about personhood, then we need to look at the distinctions between which one sent, who, who was sent, who is subservient to who so-and-so, so to say, who died on the cross, who poured out his blood. It wasn't the Holy Spirit that did that, right? Um, you know, who um, who showed up as a mighty rushing wind. It wasn't Jesus that did that, right? Uh, you know, who impregnated uh, Mary to bring about the birth of the Messiah. It wasn't Messiah's own spirit that impregnated Mary, right? It wasn't the whole, you know. So we have to understand uh, the, the, the kind of the... Um, the articulation between ontological trinity discussions and economic trinity discussions. Ontological, for all of those of you out there who are not familiar with this fancy word, ontology deals with the nature and identity of beings and things. Um, what's its makeup? What's the core essence of this thing that we're having a discussion about? What's God's breakdown? What's his makeup? Right? That's what we mean by ontological trinity. Comparatively, economic trinity deals with the roles and functions that, that we recognize that God has in the Bible. Is he father? Father, is he son? Is he spirit? Is he creator? Is he savior? Is he redeemer? Is he uh, comforter? Um, you know, did he create the world? Uh, did he uh, uh, indwell us? Did he did he empower us? Those are all economic trinity discussions and terms and, and things like that. So don't get those too confused. That'll do it for exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn to uh, what do I usually do next? Do I usually do the video, or do I do? No, I think I do the. Um, I think I do the uh, uh, the liturgy. I I've, it's been, it's been a it's been it's only been like two weeks. I missed one week, and I'm just forgetting all my context. I apologize. Let's read through our liturgy real quick. I'm going to read through this. I'm not going to belabor the point. I'm going to just tell you what I'm going to read, and I'm not going to tell you why. I'm going to read Deuteronomy 34, verse 10, 11, and 12, both in the English and in the Hebrew. Then I'm going to jump over to Genesis 1 and read verse 1, 2, and 3 in the English and in the Hebrew. And uh, if you don't know why, go back and listen to uh, last week's commentary, I'm sorry, two weeks ago, and you'll find out why I'm reading it this way. But let me just read it here. Deuteronomy 34, verse 10. And there is not arisen a prophet since in Israel, like Moses, whom the Lord knew faith to face. Verse 11. None like like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his household, I'm sorry, to all his servants and to all his land. And verse 12, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel.
Here's the Hebrew over on the right side of the page, verse 10. Verse 11. I'm sorry. Verse 12. Yisrael. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 3. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. The Hebrew, verse 1, Verse 2, And verse 3, And there's one more passage that I actually do want to read. This will be the um, Greek uh, reading for our Hebrew and Greek liturgy. Ephesians 2, 14 15, and 16. And we're reading this because it was connected to our Roman study a few weeks ago where we were talking about what makes for mutual uh, peace and mutual building like Paul challenges us in uh, Romans 14, 19. And we answered the question in our Roman study that what makes for peace and mutual building is a fee, is a, a, the idea that we're joined together in Messiah uh, with a common faith in Messiah and filled with his Holy Spirit. And it doesn't matter whether we're Jew or Gentile. We're both part of the same uh, uh, family of God, the family of Messiah, the family of Abraham, sons and daughters of Abraham, body of Messiah, uh, however you want to describe it. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians um, 2.14, speaking of Yeshua, for he himself is our peace. He has made us both, right, us is the Jew and Gentile, he's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh to the dividing wall of hostility, which he says in verse 15, he does by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Did Paul just tell us that Jesus did away with the law to bring Jew and Gentile together? Nope, that's not what he said. By context, what Paul is saying is that he did away with our social class caste system, which separated us as Jews and Gentiles, and was strengthened by our own particular uh, um, community bylaws and group laws, otherwise known as halakha, in other words, the oral Torah and traditions of Paul's day that separated Jews from Gentiles and made a distinction um, of who was a genuine child of God. Jesus came and wiped through all that. He blew through all that. He just broke down all those walls of separation that were built up by man. It was not built up by the Torah. It was built up by man's misuse of Torah and man's um, perversion of Torah. But Jesus came and cut through all of that nonsense. It's not the Torah that was nonsense. It's not the Torah that needed to be broken down by Messiah. It was the law of commandments expressed in dogma expressed in ordinances, not the actual commandments themselves. Uh, verse 16, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The Greek says, starting verse 14, En, I'm sorry, hen kai ta mestotoikan tu fragmu lusas tein ekran. 
verse 15, in te sarakiao tu ton namanton, in talon in dogmas in katergesas, hina tus juokatise in auto, es hena kainon anthropon poion ereni. And verse 15, uh, verse 16, kai apakatalaxe, that's a tongue twister, tus amphoteros in in heni somati to theodia to stauru apaktenas, it's another tongue twister, tain ekthron in alatel. And that'll do it uh, for our liturgy for tonight. And let's turn now to the short little video. There's actually two videos that we're going to bring in. Uh, should I bring in both? One of them is on the Sabbath, and the other is on the faith of Sarah because of uh, Parashat Chaya uh, um, Sara being the Torah portion for this week. Maybe I'll watch both. Maybe I'll just watch one. But let's watch the videos. And after we're done with the videos, we'll simply dismiss in prayer. You ready? Here we go. Short questions, short answers by Torah teacher Ariel and E-Bible. Yep, that's me. Here's our question. Are Christians free to worship God any day of the week? Well, let's find out. There actually appears to be two questions here. Thus, I will attempt to answer both of the questions. The first question that I perceive is, does Romans 14.5 indicate Christians are free to worship God any day of the week? And the answer to the first question, in one sense, since uh, believers are free to worship God any day of the week, and we should be worshiping Him every day of the week, right? However, our Messianic freedom should not drastically separate us, but cause us to, quote, pursue what makes for mutual upbuilding, end quote. And that's pulled from Romans 14.19 as well. There's no historical evidence or theological support from the first century to suppose that Romans 14.5 should be interpreted as a freedom to choose worship days. Make sense so far? All right, we'll talk about that more a little bit later. Second question, does Romans 14.5 indicate that we're not bound by law to worship on a certain day? Answer, how one answers this question depends on who the we are in this question and what is meant by, quote, a certain day, end quote. If the we are Gentile Christians, I can only say that the early Messianic communities were sect of Judaism, right? Read through the book of Acts. This means that Gentile members must have been quite familiar with and most certainly respectful of Torah, even if they did not fully embrace it as Gentile believers. Again, refer to Acts, uh, this time chapter 15. Indeed, the evidence from extant first century rabbinic writings, i.e. Mishnah, indicate Gentiles without legal Jewish status were forbidden from embracing Torah. Thus, popular opinion today would say no to this particular question. However, if the we is Jewish people and the certain day implies Sabbath, then the answer is an emphatic yes. For indeed, Jews are covenantally bound by God and Torah to worship on seventh-day Sabbath. Read Exodus 19.8, read Exodus 20, verse 8, read Exodus 31, 13, 15, and 16, and read Acts 21, verse 20. And you'll see that all of these verses pull Israel into covenant relationship with God. This most naturally includes we Messianic Jews, since like Paul himself, we are 100% Jewish, Acts 22. 
2.3 and we're 100% Messianic, Acts 24.14, and we're 100% a part of Israel, Romans 11.1. What is more, even the popular opinion teaches that the Torah is for Jews, right? That's what most people, both Jewish and Christian, come to the conclusion of anyway. So, what are our conclusions to this very short question? In this day and age, believers are free to worship on whatever day the Ruch HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, leads them to worship on. However, it would be wise to at least establish a regular scheduled pattern and location of worship so that one can become accountable to a local congregation, if at all possible. And that's why I said everything I said in my accountability. Biblical freedom is not a license to church hop as often as one pleases. To this degree, there may be no rigid right or wrong answer uh, to this particular question about should I worship on Sabbath day or Sunday. I don't personally agree with using Romans 14.5 to justify uh, worshiping on a Sabbath day, but we'll talk about that in a different podcast. Again, catch me on iTunes. My uh, podcasts are always available for you. Search to Mario Hanavi or you prefer uh, watching your teachings, well then uh, head on out to YouTube and Google search me, Ariel Hanavi or Tate Torah. Subscribe to my YouTube channels. Make sure you hit the little setting that causes you to receive updates whenever I upload a new video uh, because I upload new content uh, multiple times a week, okay? Alrighty. And that will do it for the videos for tonight. Let's close in prayer. I bless your name, and I'm so thankful to be a part of a real-life uh, community that's able to meet together week after week, even if it's through the Internet. It's still live. I know there's students listening to my voice right now, and it's not via the YouTube crowd. It's not via the iTunes crowd. It's actually right here live in the Skype crowd. So thank you for them. Bless them. Uh, raise them up. Continue to protect them. And bring us back together next week, if it be your will. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. Amen.